This morning, I want us to be in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. The words will be up on the screen. Um, And there are printed outlines and messages at the exits. I don't see any messages at that exit, but there should be some at all the exits. They're kind of a mustard yellow color this week. And you can grab one now or, or later. Um, I want to talk about getting out of the spiritual doldrums. And Paul writes this. This is a prayer. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, I, as I'll point out, I think it should be translated, the whole family, in heaven and earth, derives its name, that... He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, which is beyond Uh, comprehension, and that um, you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Doldrums, do you know what they are? Technically, the doldrums is a sailing term because down around the equator, there are parts of the ocean where the trade winds often do not blow. And if you're caught down there in a sailing vessel with no motor, you aren't going anywhere. You're stuck. Um, Webster adds a couple of other practical definitions. It says it's a spell of listlessness or despondency or blues, or it's a state of inactivity, stagnation, or a slump. I'm guessing, because this happens to me from time to time, I'm guessing that there are some of you who are caught in spiritual doldrums right now. It's not that you're denying the faith. It's not that you're considering becoming an atheist, nothing like that. It's just that you're kind of spiritually stagnant. You're not going anywhere. Uh, Your Christian life is kind of routine and boring. And if that describes you in any way, then I am praying that this message will motivate you and equip you to get out of the doldrums and to see this year be a year of unprecedented growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's been over a year now that the Lord put this prayer that I read on my heart. And uh, after turning there so many times, I finally copied it and put it on a three by five card And I have been praying it over and over and over for myself, for my family, extended, 
my immediate family and extended family, and, and for you. If you come to this church, this has been my prayer for you. Um, it's kind of a go-for-broke prayer. You know, uh, if you're a football fan, you know what a Hail Mary pass is. The team is behind, and they need a touchdown desperately, and the quarterback drops back, and he throws this pass down to the end of the field, and if the end catches it, it's going to be a touchdown, and they're going to win the game. So it's kind of a all or nothing, throw it out there, and hope, Hail Mary, that he catches it kind of a pass. That's what, where it gets its name. Well, that's what Paul is doing here, only more. You'll notice in verse 19, he prays that these believers will be filled up to all the fullness of God. You can't get any fuller than all the fullness of God. And as if that were not enough, then he adds in verse 20, uh, he, he prays to him who is able to do. And you say, well, that's enough. If God is able to do it, right? Well, no, he doesn't stop there. Now to him who is able to do far more. Okay, Paul, that's great. We need a God who can do far more. He doesn't stop there. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Okay, okay. Now our cup's running over, right? He doesn't stop there. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask. Wow, okay. Surely that's the limit. Nope. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So God's power is the limit, which is limitless. And so this is a New Year's goal I want to give you that I think will help you move out of the spiritual doldrums. Or if you're not in the doldrums, pray this for your loved ones, for this church, for our missionaries, for lost people that you know who need to come to Jesus. So to get out of the spiritual doldrums, pray this prayer often so that you and others will experience a year of unprecedented growth in the Lord. That's my prayer for you all, for myself, for my family. You know, James says in James 4.2 that often we don't have because we don't ask. We're, we just don't think to pray. And so don't be guilty of not asking God this year for something that is humanly impossible. That if he does it, you're going, wow, that was a God thing. You know, it's not explainable by any human means. Um, when the angel spoke to Mary about the incarnation, he gave her this great verse, Luke one thirty-seven. He said, for nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, that's a tautology, of course. <laughs> with God, nothing is impossible. Now, to make a perfect sermon, I had to come up with seven points, right? Because seven's the perfect number, so I got seven points. First of all, pray this prayer often for yourself, your family members, and this church this year. And I would just encourage you as an action point, do what I did. Put this verse on a 3 by 5 card and either tuck it in your Bible, if you read your Bible every morning, as you should be, or put it by your breakfast table if you're in a rush to get out the door. I hope you eat breakfast and you can just read it over and pray it before you rush off for your day 
and uh, as I said, extended to our missionaries, extended to, um, Stan has often talked about having a list of 8 to 15 people that you're praying that they will come to Christ, pray it for them. Four things under this first point. First of all, pray more for spiritual growth than for physical needs uh, or material needs. Um, The Apostle Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter of Ephesians. And you can be sure that prisons in Rome in that day were not pretty. They were not like, you know, well-lit, nice soft mattress, uh, three square meals a day. No, they were rough. And Paul's in prison. And probably the clothes on his back were his only clothes because they didn't issue uniforms to the prisoners back then. Um, Paul had suffered a lot of physical abuse, beatings, shipwrecks, stoned once, left for dead. You know, that takes a toll on one's body, and Paul's now probably up in his 60s. So what would you pray if you were Paul? Oh, Lord, get me out of this prison. Oh, Lord, would you provide for my physical needs? I'm hungry, and my clothes are getting kind of threadbare. And, oh, Lord, my body aches. Would you please heal my aching body? Paul doesn't ask for any of that. In fact, the only prayer request in the book of Ephesians for Paul personally comes in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And you know what he asks? Would you please pray for me that I'd be bold in my witness? You're going, huh? That's Paul asking for boldness. This is a guy, he gets stoned and he gets up and goes back and keeps preaching. And he says, please pray that I'll be bold in my witness. Now, he begins the prayer uh, for this reason in verse 14. And if you go up to chapter 3, verse 1, you see the same phrase, for this reason. And what happens is, Paul breaks off what he's going to say in verse 1, and he goes on a digression from verses 2 down through verse 13 to explain why he's suffering so that the Ephesians won't be bummed out by Paul being in prison. And then he comes back to what he was going to pray for. And I believe that chapter 3, verse 1 goes back to the first two chapters. And in those chapters, Paul says that God has saved us by his grace and Miracle of all miracles, he made Jew and Gentile, who were natural enemies, into one new body in Christ, and he's causing them to be built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, for that reason, he says, I pray. So he's saying, you know, because God saved you, because he's uh, united you in the church, and therefore I pray. And what he prays is, that God would make real in the experience of these new believers. And remember, these people had come to Christ out of paganism. They were worshiping at the temple of Diana. Uh, They were, uh, many of them, slaves, some of them illiterate. And he is praying that their position in Christ would be their practice. That they would recognize the riches they have in Christ and put it into their daily lives. And, you know, that's the same pattern, by the way, in prayer that the Lord's Prayer has. It begins, you know, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's prayer for spiritual things. 
And then give us this day our daily bread. He gets down to the material. And that's how we should pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for others first. Oh, Lord, meet their spiritual needs. That's the most important. Oh, and by the way, here's our physical needs. The second thing about this part of the prayer, pray in humble submission to and dependence on the Father. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, he could have said, for this reason, I pray to the Father. But he says, bow my knees. Why? Well, he's not prescribing every time you pray, you have to be on your knees. It's an attitude of the heart. Because bowing your knee is saying, Lord, I revere you. Hallowed be your name. I submit to you. You're the Lord. Uh, Lord, I come before you needy. And Lord, I worship and adore you. That word before in Greek means toward or face to face with. And coupled with the word father, the picture is a little child coming to his loving father who just welcomes him, scoops him up into his arms and is so glad to see him. And as you know, that's how we can come to our heavenly father. But in that culture, father was not only a term of intimacy and endearment, it was also a term of authority. The father had authority over the family. And the act of naming was an act of authority. If you named something, you had authority over it. Adam, remember in the garden, named the animals. And that meant he had authority over the animals. Well, Paul says here that the father uh, from whom every family, or I think better translated, the whole family, because he's talking about the church, in heaven and on earth, derives its name. And that just tells us that while we can come to God intimately as His children, we shouldn't come irreverently. He's not our good buddy in the sky. He's the sovereign, almighty God of the universe. And so we come to Him under His authority, His Lordship, dependent on Him. And prayer is the admission that we can't do life by ourselves. We are dependent on the Lord. We need Him. So pray for spiritual needs more than physical. Pray in humble submission to and dependence on the Father. Thirdly, pray based on God's grace and not your performance. And in there he says in verse 16 that God would grant you. And grant is a grace word. It, it's a giving word. It means that God doesn't grant our requests because we've chalked up points with God and earned it. Now, the Bible's clear. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God won't hear me. I need to confess my sins. But I don't come to God saying, God, I've really been good this week. You know, and I've chalked up this and this and this good deeds. And so would you please? No. I come to God saying, God, I'm unworthy for you to answer. But your son invites me to come into his presence, to receive mercy and grace, to help in my time of need. So I come based on what Christ is, not on who I am. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, This is faith, renouncing of everything we're apt to call our own, and relying wholly on the blood, righteousness, and intercession 
of Jesus. And that's the last thing then, to pray in faith, knowing that God's supply is limitless. See verse 16, that the Father would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That's a staggering phrase. According to the riches of his glory. God's riches include he owns the world and all that's in it. But as I said, Paul isn't so much speaking here of material riches as he is of spiritual. And you'll remember, if you know the book of Ephesians, that he begins this book in chapter 1 and verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is ours. And then in chapter 2 and verse 7, he says that in the ages to come, in the ages to come, he is going to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think that verse means it's going to take all eternity and then some to find out all the blessings that God has freely heaped upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, You notice he doesn't say he's going to give us out of the riches of his grace, of his glory, but according to. And the difference is this. Say you know a billionaire and he gives you $100. He just gave you out of his riches. He didn't give according to his riches. If he gives you $10 million, okay, now he just gave you according to his riches. Because not everybody can give $10 million. Well, God has all these riches and he gives you according to the riches of his grace. And so it's a bottomless supply. So pray in faith, believing, God, you are able to fulfill my request. So what should you pray for? Well, that leads us to point number two. And that is pray for the Father to grant that you will be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner person. That's verse 16. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Now, he gives, there are two reasons for that request. The first reason, you're praying for the power of His indwelling Spirit because your problems are beyond your own strength to resolve or solve. Your problems are beyond you. I, I can't do it. And so we're not talking here about some kind of a dramatic one-time spiritual experience where you're caught up to the third heaven or something like that. We're talking about a daily dependence on the Lord because, Lord, uh, I just can't cut it by myself. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room there in John fifteen five. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that means don't do all you can and then come for help when you... You know, you're finished. No, you can't do anything. Come to me immediately for my help. We're totally dependent on God. And, you know, we often forget that. We do. And the reason we don't pray is because we forget that. But first thing, pray. Don't use prayer as a last resort. Use it as a first resort. And a good question you can ask yourself that I try and ask myself from time to time is, if God were to withdraw His Spirit from me, how long would it take me to notice? 
Say, I have to depend on the Lord. A second reason you're praying for power through his spirit in the inner person is because God always changes outward behavior beginning on the heart, beginning inward. You know, modern science has made some amazing discoveries, but there's one thing modern science cannot do. They cannot impart life to something that's dead. You can take a dead animal to a scientist and say, would you please resurrect it? Sorry. Same thing with a dead person. They just don't have that ability. That's a God thing. And you see, that's what the new birth is about. Christianity is not a moral improvement project where, you know, you say, okay, I need this virtue and this. I'll make a New Year's resolution and pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, it's a thing of life, of new life in Christ. That's why it's called the new birth. When there's a baby and it's alive, you, you know it, don't you? And you go, wow, what a miracle that that life was formed inside that woman. That's, that's a life thing. And so, Paul in Ephesians says in chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God made you alive in Christ. That's the new birth. And so pray for inner transformation through the new birth, through life in Christ that begins on the heart level. You know, I've often encountered Christian parents, and they're sincere, and of course they, they want the best for their kids. And the kid has grown up to become a rebel. He's denied the faith. He's doing drugs. He's into the world 100%. And they'll say to me, oh, but he's a Christian because he went to vacation Bible school when he was a kid and prayed to ask Jesus to come into his heart. Well, maybe, but maybe not. The issue is this. Has God changed his heart? If God hasn't changed his heart, he isn't a Christian. You can't just pull the lever and, you know, it's automatic. Jesus said, you'll know the tree by its fruit. Is there fruit? Is there evidence of new life? Has his heart changed? Does he now love God and hate sin? You know, does he love God's word? Does he hunger and thirst after righteousness? Those are signs of new life because the Spirit of God has done a work in his heart. And if there's none of that, well, he needs life from God. And God needs to change his heart. Same thing if you're battling temptation. You can change the outward person by signing up for a program, maybe going to a 12-step group, getting counseling where they give you some techniques that, you know, you can overcome temptation. Okay, but that's not heart change. Heart change is what gives you victory over temptation. And if you don't have heart change, I hate to use a gross analogy, but you're just putting a tuxedo on a pig. You know, you can do that. Put a tuxedo on a pig and dress him up, and he looks grand for about five minutes, and then he goes back to the, the mud. Why? Because he's got a pig nature. And if you want him to stay clean, you've got to give him a new nature. And that's what God does in the new birth. And so, for that kind of interchange to happen, we need nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit to convert sinners and to sanctify the saints as they depend on the Spirit of God. 
And only that can make your, house, your heart a house where Jesus is pleased to dwell. And that's the third prayer here. Pray that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. See verse 17? So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Now you say, wait a minute. Paul's writing here to believers. Doesn't Christ dwell in the heart of every believer? Yes, in one sense, he indwells every believer. But Paul's praying here for something deeper, something better. That Christ would be at home in your heart through faith. Two things about that. First of all, Christ dwells in your heart through faith as you trust and obey him. Biblical faith isn't just passive, let go and let God. It is an active relying on the promises of God's word, especially when circumstances say, that's false, this is true. And you have to say, no, no, I trust this. This is true, that's false, because God said this. And biblical faith is always inextricably bound up with obedience. Because if you really are trusting God, then you obey him. And if you're obeying God, you're doing it because you trust his word is the truth. And so Jesus talked about the link between obedience and him dwelling in our hearts. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, then he will keep my word. There's obedience. And my father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. And Christ is not at home with a disobedient believer who keeps a dirty house. You've got a clean house for Jesus to dwell in your heart by faith. And what that means is in second place here is that Christ dwelling in your heart by faith means he is progressively taking over every single area of your life. And it's a lifelong process where you welcome Christ into your life and then gradually as you are in God's word he begins to clean up the various areas of your life. I think this little booklet My Heart Christ's Home that I mentioned that I've got more coming next week by Robert Munger says it better than anything I've ever read. Um, he tells how after Christ entered his heart in the joy of his newfound relationship with Christ, he said, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want my heart to be yours, and I want you to settle down and be perfectly at home in my heart, and so everything I have belongs to you, and let me show you around and introduce you to some of the various features of the home so that you'll be more comfortable here, and we can have better fellowship together. So, in the book, he proceeds to take Christ into the study, and that represents his mind, what his mind dwells on. Well, there was a lot of junk in the study, and Christ had to begin cleaning out the study. And uh, then they go on to the living room, and they agree that every morning they're going to meet there in the living room for a time of fellowship together, and that goes pretty well for a time. And then Munger gets busy with all the stuff that, you know, crowds into life. And one day he's running out the door and he glances in there and there's the Lord sitting there by himself. And he says, Lord, you know, are you here all alone? He said, yeah, I've been here every morning. Remember, we agreed to meet. 
And then Munger makes a very telling comment. He says that he had been viewing those times with the Lord only as a means for his own spiritual progress, not as a time to fellowship with the living Lord. And uh, I can relate to that. Time to fellowship with the Lord. Well, I can't go through the whole booklet. He goes on to all these different rooms in the house, but at the end, there's one room, and it's locked, and it's the hall closet. And that's where he's been keeping the secret stuff. You know, stuff you don't want the Lord to know about. And the Lord, one day, when Munger comes home, says, uh, there's a stench coming from that closet. We need to get in there. And he's mortified. He says, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want you in there. He says, I'm going to dwell here. You've got to give me the key. And so he does. And it's a picture, again, of how God works in our hearts. He wants to move from room to room to every area of your life and begin cleaning that up and making it suitable as a place for him to dwell. So, first point, pray this prayer often for your family, for your loved ones, for yourself, for others. Pray for the Father to grant that you be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Pray that Christ would dwell in your heart by faith. And then fourthly, Paul says, pray that you'll be rooted and grounded in love. That's at the end of verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, Paul's mixing up his metaphors there. Rooted is a botanical thing. A plant has a root. A tree has a root. Grounded is a, an architectural term. It's the foundation of a building. So Paul strengthens the picture with both. And we need to keep the connection with the earlier part of the prayer in mind. The result of being strengthened with power through God's Spirit in the inner man is that Christ then will come and live in our home, in our hearts as a home through faith. And the result is we'll be rooted and grounded in love. Now, Paul doesn't specify yet whether he's talking about God's love for us, our love for God, or our love for one another. So I think what he's talking about is Love as the central principle of the Christian life. God's great love was demonstrated to us when he sent his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God's love undergirds everything. It is the um, initiating love. And then stemming from that, as you know, Jesus said... All of the commandments in God's word are summed up by two. Love God, love one another. Those two things. And so pray often that you and others would grow based on God's love to understand more and more of what that's all about. And then that you would grow to love God more and love others more. Pray that for our church. That we would be a church just marked with the love of God in Christ. Pray that for those in your family. Pray that for people who have yet to know that God sent his son to die for their sins. So you're praying that you'd be rooted and grounded in that love of God that's coming down from heaven and that spreads to others. And then the fifth request. 
pray that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints the unfathomable extent of the love of Christ, which Paul says surpasses knowledge. That's verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. Pray, he says, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. May be able means that you might have the strength and then to comprehend is a word that means to lay hold of or seize or grab something. If you're a child of God, you know something of the love of Christ. You can't become a Christian without knowing that God loved you enough to send his son to die for your sin. That's basic. But Paul here is talking about going deeper and knowing more and more and more. And Paul says, you'll never know it all. So you can't check this one off at the end of the year and say, well, I've come to know the love of Christ in its full extent. No, you won't know that throughout all eternity. But Paul's saying he wants you, even though this is a knowledge based on information, he wants you to have more than information. He wants you to experience this love of Christ on a deeper level. Now, you're not going to come to know this unknowable love of Christ by yourself. You see that there's a, there's a corporate emphasis all through this prayer. Up in verse 15, Paul prays that the whole family, he prays for the whole family, meaning the whole church. And then in verse 18, he prays that we may be able to comprehend the magnitude of Christ's love with all the saints. This is a corporate deal. And then in the doxology, it's kind of a daring prayer. He says, to him be glory. I would think he would have put Christ first. But he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen. And as I understand what he's getting at is this. I have experienced the love of Christ in my life. Just his many, many, many times I have known Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. But you know what? You have too, if you know Christ. And, and if we got together and shared, I would have a little bit more of the love of Christ hearing how you've experienced his love. And if we weren't around this church and shared, all of us would have a different story. And so when you get together with a brother or sister in Christ, say, hey, tell me your story. How'd you meet Christ? And how has he been faithful to you? And let me share with you my story. And the great thing is, you could go to all the Christians in Flagstaff, and you'd have more of the love of Christ. And all the Christians in Arizona and in the United States. And to me, one of the greatest blessings of traveling overseas is, I meet a brother or sister who's from a totally different culture, and they speak a different language. Sometimes it's through a translator. And I hear how God's love has been manifest in their life, and I'm the richer for it. You know, we are one in Christ with all of his family, the whole family, all around the earth. And that love, as Paul says, surpasses knowledge. We, we will never fill it up to the full. But then, that's his sixth prayer. He's going, like I said, throwing the long pass here. Pray that you'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now we're on the summit of the Mount Everest of this prayer. 
Pray that you will be filled to all the fullness of God. Let me say, there is nothing fuller than the fullness of God. <laughs> God is full. And so what Paul is, it's comparable in Colossians 1.28. He says his prayer is, uh, or his goal is to present every man complete in Christ. It's referring to the perfection of which God himself and his attributes is uh, perfect. And the word fill, I think, has the nuance of control. You know, when it, Paul talks later in Ephesians about being filled with the Spirit, it means being controlled by the Spirit. And so I think what he's talking about here is that every aspect of your life, your, your mind, how you think, your uh, attitudes, your goals, your motives, your emotions, your relationships, your finances, every decision that you make is controlled by God. Um, and it's comparable to Ephesians 4.13 where he says that we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, says it means to be all that God wants you to be or to be spiritually mature. Now, as with the entire prayer, this is a process that will never be complete in this life, but Paul wants us to be growing in it. He says in Romans 8.29 that God has predetermined that we would be conformed to the image of His Son, perfect in Christ. And that won't happen until we see Him. But remember in Philippians 3 there, Paul had been a Christian for a quarter of a century. And he was one of the more mature Christians who's ever lived. But he says, I, I don't rest on what's past, but I keep pressing on. He says in Philippians 3.14, he's pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's not content to rest. He keeps wanting to grow, and that's his prayer. And then finally, pray for God to do far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think for His glory. That's verses 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just two things here to wrap this up. The first one is this. Pray big prayers. Pray for God to do that which there's no human explanation for it. Nobody can explain it except to say it was a God thing. That's how we should pray. So don't be guilty of just praying safe prayers. You know, oh yeah, coincidence could have happened there. No, no, no. This is a Hail Mary pass. You know, throw it to the end zone. And, and pray that when it's done, everyone would go, you know what, that was way beyond what anybody could do. That's a God thing. For years, uh, the uh, story of the feeding of the 5,000 has been a, a model for me for ministry. Remember, there's 5,000 men plus women and children. They're out in a remote place, and Jesus says, give them something to eat. 
And the disciples say, what? We, we don't have anything. Just these five loaves and two fishes. Have them sit down. And they give the, their inadequate amount to the Lord. And the Lord feeds 20,000 people. That's a God thing. But remember what they did first? They said, well, Lord, 200 denarii wouldn't even feed this group. You know, they're doing mental calculation. Let's see. If we can come up with 200 denarii. No, no, it's not going to do. They didn't have 200 denarii. You know, but isn't that the way we often calculate? Well, let's see. Now, if this happens and this happens, okay, I can see how. No, no, no. This is God doing it. Philip, Phillips Brooks, the man who wrote uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem, he said this. Pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. Now let me give you one caution here. This is not a name it and claim it, slam dunk thing. Okay? Paul himself had unanswered prayers. And sometimes, and I can't explain why, you pray a prayer that you think is according to the will of God, and God, for his own inscrutable reasons, chooses not to answer it. Paul prayed earnestly for the conversion of the Jews in his day. He said, I'd be willing to give up my salvation if my brethren, the Jews, would come to Jesus Christ. Well, that didn't happen in Paul's day. In fact, 20 centuries later, it hasn't happened yet. I believe it will happen because in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, in the end time, all Israel will be saved. There will be a widespread conversion of the Jewish people um, sometime at the end. But I'm just telling you, I have prayed for the conversion of people who, as far as I know, died without Christ. And I don't know why God didn't answer my prayer. And uh, I, I have prayed many, many times as a pastor for broken marriages of people in this church and my church in California. And uh, they got divorced. And I have prayed for sending Christians to repent and come back to Jesus. And they're still out there sinning. And so I, I, this isn't just a, yeah, pull the lever and all the goodies come, name it and claim it, and you got it. No, prayer is waiting on God, and there's wrestling with God, and sometimes there's some disappointments. But finally, just pray for God to be glorified by converting sinners and sanctifying his saints. And God's glory is the goal of him saving sinners. Yeah, they get saved, but he gets the glory. And that is the same thing in sanctifying his saints. Now, to save sinners, it's not a human, you know, I vow to follow Jesus. No, no, no. It's a God thing, as I said. His Holy Spirit has to give new life to those who are dead in their sins. But the point is, if God can save the chief of sinners, who's the Apostle Paul, he can save that difficult loved one of yours that you go, there's no way, you know, that that, that person's going to come to faith. Well, humanly, you're right. But God's in the business of saving sinners. <clears throat> and maybe you know somebody who's a difficult Christian to be around. Well, God's in the business of sanctifying his saints. So pray. Pray big prayers.
So to get out of the spiritual doldrums, then pray this prayer for yourself, for family members, for people in this church and beyond. Pray that the Father would grant, according to the riches of his glory, that you would be strengthened with power through his Spirit and the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the uh, unimaginable extent, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then, on top of all that, pray to God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think for him to be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. My sweet little granddaughter, Jubilee, who's uh, 11 now, she was 10 when she made this uh, bookmark for me. And it's got a quote from John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. And you know, that's what this prayer is. And so wherever you're at with the Lord, this new year can be a year of more. More. More in the Lord. Growing in the Lord. And so get out of the spiritual doldrums and put this prayer on a three-by-five card and begin praying earnestly from the heart for a year of unprecedented growth for yourself, your loved ones, for this church, for the body of Christ worldwide. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you as needy people. I'm sure that since you know all things, you know every heart in this room and every need that we have. And Lord, we confess we cannot solve these needs by ourselves. So Lord, I call on you and pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be sufficient in every heart and life. I pray if there are those who have never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, they would make that decision today to begin the new year with Jesus in their heart and life, knowing that he has forgiven all their sins, not based on works, but because they've trusted in his shed blood on the cross. And I pray, Lord, for your saints that those who are struggling would be encouraged, that those who have suffered loss would be comforted. Lord, we don't know what the future holds, but we know you who hold the future. And so I pray that it would be a year of growth and strength and faith and love in Christ. We would look back and say, wow, God worked in hearts and lives this year. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to conclude.